Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with Laylee Long Soldier. I was actually scheduled to interview Laylee a year ago, November, but then her poetry collection, Whereas, was announced as a finalist for the National Book Award, and she needed to be in New York the same week she was scheduled to be in Portland. So our conversation fell through at the last moment. And while I was obviously excited for her, I was also a little bit heartbroken as Whereas was not only one of my favorite poetry collections of that year, but of the last many years. And I, I wasn't sure I was going to get the chance to have this conversation. But luckily, she came through Portland exactly a year later, this time both as part of the Lewis and Clark College reading series and as a panelist at the Portland Book Festival on behalf of the new anthology for, from Grey Wolf entitled New Poets of Native Nations, edited by Hyde Erdrich. Revisiting Whereas a year later for a second time, imagining that Laylee had probably been answering the same or similar questions about it over the last several years, and now thinking of new ways to approach it, and also tuning into the various projects she's been involved with since Whereas came out, I realize now that perhaps it was a blessing to have this delay, because I think it is not only a very different conversation than I planned for then, but a richer one, too. I hope you enjoy it. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Laylee Long Soldier. Long Soldier holds a BFA in creative writing from the Institute of American Indian Arts and an MFA from Bard College. She has been a contributing editor at Drunken Boat, a poetry editor at Core Press, a faculty member at Diné College, and is currently teaching poetry at the Iowa Writers Workshop and the Randolph College Low Residency MFA. Lately, Long Soldier's poems have appeared in Poetry Magazine, The New York Times, The American Poet, The American Reader, The Kenyan Review, and Bomb, as well as in her chapbook, Chromosomori. She is the recipient of a Lannan Literary Award, a Native Arts and Cultures Foundation National Artist Fellowship, and a 2016 Whiting Award. Lately, Long Soldier is here today to talk about her poetry collection, Whereas, from Grey Wolf Press, Whereas was a finalist for the National Book Award in Poetry. 
shortlisted for the Griffin Poetry Prize and winner of both the Penn Jean Stein Book Award and the National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry. Natalie Diaz in the New York Times Review of Whereas says, Long Soldier reminds readers of their physical and linguistic bodies as they are returned to language through their mouths and eyes and tongues across the fields of her poems. The New Yorker says that using elliptical prose, blank spaces, crossed out text and Lakota words, Long Soldier articulates both her identity and her literary undertaking. Krista Tippett says, Lely Long Soldier's lyrical first book, Whereas, explores the freedom real apologies can bring and offers entry points for us all to histories that are not merely about the past. And the judges of the National Book Critics Circle Award say in their citation, Long Soldier's movement between collective and personal makes this book intimate and urgent. She has charted new ways to write in what's been left out, and not merely in the margins either, whereas offers a powerful reckoning. Welcome to Between the Covers, Laylee Long Soldier. No, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, whereas opens with a meditation on place, mm-hmm. on language and relationship to place, in a sequence of poems called Hey Sapa. Mm-hmm. And you also speak about the importance of place when you speak of your star quilt installation mm-hmm. and your first class teaching at Iowa mm-hmm. is a course on place. So I was hoping before you ground us in whereas in relationship to place, perhaps you could first talk to us how you ground your students and orient them to place and language at Iowa. Um, I'm presuming that your students are coming from all over the country and you yourself dis- are dislocated from the Southwest mm-hmm. and in Iowa. So tell us some of your thinking as you, as you open a class in a new place yourself with, with these students. Right. Well, that's a nice question. Um, and in Iowa in particular, you're right. There's a, a great sense of, you know, when you're entering into a, any kind of academic environment most often as a faculty member, uh, as well as the student body, almost all of you are displaced in some way. You know, you're, you're leaving home and you're coming to this new place. And so essentially you're there just for that program, right? Maybe that's your only anchor to that place. Um, so that's kind of where, where we started with the course, I actually wanted to get the students uh, grounded uh, in where we were at. We are at in Iowa. So uh, we kind of opened with some thoughts from Joy Harjo, who talks about, um, I can't remember the whole passage, but what was most interesting was uh, she said, even placelessness is a place. I have the quote if I'll I'll, I'll read read it. it. The poet can not be separated from place. Even placelessness becomes a place. Mm -hmm. The world of conjecture, scholarship, and philosophical discourse is a place or series of places based on on land and how one lives off the land. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That was very fascinating. Yes. So we started with that as something to think about. 
And then the first uh, two classes in the, the, to start the semester off, we uh, read Ray Young Bear, who is Meskwaki, and just about an hour up from Iowa City. So he's, uh, he lives close by. He's a local poet, uh, native poet. And he actually, uh, very last minute, came and visited our class, you know. So I felt like that was important. I wanted them to, um, to have an entryway into poetics and writing, um, thinking about someone who is from Iowa and not just uh, first generation, but we're talking thousands of years. And there's a long history there of how his uh, family, how his people um, acquired the land for their settlement. They don't have a reservation. It's actually a settlement. So there's all kinds of uh, different mechanisms that go into that as well. So he shared some of that. He talked to us a bit about his philosophy of insignificance, which was very interesting. Um, Just even that phrase has given me a lot to think about, you know. Can, can you speak um, to that a little? To, I'm going to be honest. Uh, we asked him directly to explain it, and he began just explaining. He explained it through story, which was very uh, familiar in, in like, talking to other um, Native relatives or uh, friends. Um, that's the way of answering something. It's not just a one-sentence answer. Yeah. So I cannot repeat to you a concise um, and definition of what he means by that exactly. But the best that I can summarize um, what I understood from him was really it was a connection. It was understanding kind of a connection to land. You know, and that you're just one. Uh, humans, people are just one, one uh, part of this existence. You know, and a constant acknowledgement of every your relatives around you, and those are the non-human hu- relatives. You know, as can, well. Can you speak to the the group poem that you did in the class? That um, maybe in light of this philosophy of connecting to the land. Yeah. Okay. So um, then we moved further into the semester and we actually uh, just did a little writing exercise one day and I went online and I um, found several different sites that had, uh, for example, a whole site on the um, various plant, the plant life, uh, indigenous plant life of Iowa and so I printed this huge list, you know. Um, I mean, I think there was a whole family of, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember all of the plants, but like these flowers and these uh, grasses and all kinds of things. And um, and then also the animal, then the animals that were indigenous to the area, uh, some of geology and so forth. And I just took those lists and I um, cut them up and I gave each student a section to work with. And of course, there's poetry just just in the names Mm. of things. It's Mm -hmm. so beautiful, you know. Um, So, and I, all I asked them, I, I, asked them to just write two lines 
using um, one of the names on, on their list in each line. And then I said, I tricked you. <laughs> You're only going to use one of those lines, so pick your favorite. Hmm. And then on the chalkboard, I had them come up and just uh, each, when they were done, um, to come up and write that. And, and all together, it was this beautiful symphony, you yeah. know, uh, uh, sort of honoring that place in some way uh, as a group. Uh, and these just unexpected turns, twists and turns in, in, the, in the poem. So, yeah. There was this really heartening interaction that I witnessed on, on Facebook um, with you talking about uh, the painfulness of adjusting to Iowa from, from New Mexico, the, yeah. the amount of concrete and the, the humidity and the chill and the, the gray and the, both the lack of color environmentally and ethnically. Mm-hmm. And Joy Harjo reached out on your page to share that she, when she was there, struggled a lot too, yes. and that she used to keep track of a calendar uh, marking whenever the sun would show up, yes. and that once it had gone over a month, yes. and that her poem, Grace, is about this experience. Yes. Uh, and that poem begins with this incredible line, I think of wind and her wild ways, the year we had nothing to lose, and lost it anyway in the cursed country of the fox. And then she goes on to describe her time there as we lost a winter in stubborn memory, walked through cheap apartment walls, skated through fields of ghosts into a town that never wanted us. And finally, wind, I am still crazy. I know there is something larger than the memory of a dispossessed people. We have seen it. And it feels like this sort of brings me to or brings us to the first poem in in Whereas, Mm -hmm. which also... I think in the same spirit is about place and memory and also the colonization and decolonization of language. So I was mm-hmm. hoping maybe you could orient us to uh, this poem mm-hmm. and the language that you're interrogating in relationship to place. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, well, the book opens with Chesapa. Uh, and so if you know anything about Chesapa, that um, that's the Black Hills in South Dakota. And so um, I opened the book with that piece because it is the place of origin for Lakota people. So um, our origin story is, um, you know, as we understand it, that's where we come from. That's where we emerged from out of the earth. And so... I felt like that was how I wanted to begin the whole book, right? This place of origin. Um, what else should I? <laughs> well, what I'm interested in, I guess, is um, you go into how the language is misinterpreted uh-huh. when it is brought from Lakota to English. Yes. And then it is also, again, misinterpreted or retranslated back into Lakota using the error from the original translation so that Lakota actually is changing. Uh, Yes. So I've heard different versions of this, but this is what I heard when I was younger, is that Chesapa is like the original um, name for this place, for the Black Hills. Um, And then... uh, So when settlers came and this... 
and we refer to this as the black chesapa, uh, uh, which actually translates che is um, mountain and sapa is black. Um, it was translated into English as black hills. And over time, a more contemporary uh, way of referring to that place uh, has been pasapa, which is um, they've taken Black Hills and translated it back into um, Lakota so that it translates as Black Hill. Pa is, up, pa is the hill. Hmm. Um, that is the version I heard when I was younger. And more recently, I can't remember, I don't remember where, I think it was on Facebook or something. Someone was posting the reverse. Uh, they were saying Pasapa was the original, and I was um, giving that a little side eye. I don't know if that's the case. And this is the unfortunate thing, is that um, sometimes um, it's difficult to um, dig through um, history um, and, you know, just always find that definite place of truth, you know. <laughs> so, but we have to allow for different versions, you know, so I accept that too. But this is what I understood. So Chesapa is what I refer to as the Black Hills, and this is what... what. Um, Could you read us yeah. the first page of Chesapa uh, number one? Um, sure. Chesapa. One, He is a mountain as He is a horn that comes from a shift in the river, throat to mouth, followed by Sapa, a kind of black sleek in the rise of both. Remember, Chesapa is not a black hill, not Pasapa, by any name you call it. When it lives in the past tense, one would say it was not Redhorn either, was not a rider on horse on mount, and did not lead a cavalry down the river and bend, not decoy to ambush and knee buckle, to ten or twenty, perhaps every horse face in water. Its rank is a mountain and must live as a mountain, as a black horn does from base to black horn tip. See it as you come, you approach. To remember it, this is like gravel. We've been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read from Whereas. You, you mentioned that you begin the book because it's the origin, the origin place of the Lakota people, mm -hmm. um, which makes it feel like an acknowledgement of place. And I, I guess I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on land acknowledgements, mm -hmm. um, which I know have been happening in Australia and New Zealand and Canada longer than, but they seem to be catching on more in events in the United States. So mm -hmm. that would be the prior to this interview or before we continue this interview to acknowledge that 
we're having it on the occupied lands of the Multnomah and Clackamas people of the Chinook and Tualatin and Malala and many other tribes and bands that have lived in along the Columbia and Willamette River for thousands of years. But I also know that there's debate about them and that whereas is exploring this difference between words without actions and actions without words. So I just was curious if you see the tradition of land acknowledgments, which seem to be gaining uh, steam as an important first step towards possible change, Mm -hmm. or do you see, or do you fear that the words uh, stand in for change? Mm. Well, that would be the danger, right? The danger is that it would become a stand-in. I actually feel like it's a it's a nice uh, step forward because I think it brings it into the consciousness of people, you yeah. know, uh, which I think wasn't in the consciousness uh, at all. Certainly when I was a young person and when I was in some of those spaces, there was no acknowledgement at all. So um, for me, I actually appreciate it. And it's it's a good reminder for me, even as a Native person, when I go to certain places, um, you know, there's over 560 federally recognized tribes. Even I am not completely up on every, you know, every tribe in every region. So when I, even myself, when I go to visit places and those people are acknowledged, it's good to hear and to hear their names, to hear the language, and um, so on. So, um, yeah, I I actually appreciate it yeah. myself. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in the middle section of this sequence of of poems, mm-hmm. you sort of establish another theme or another line of questioning that runs through the collection, mm-hmm. and that's where we get this poem that's written as a cube, and the perimeter of the cube are words, and the inside of the cube, most of the page is white space. Mm -hmm. Um, And it feels like the poem is announcing itself as image before it announces itself as text. Mm -hmm. Um, And it has this sort of Gertrude Stein-like iteration and reiteration of a phrase. And I was hoping maybe you could read it, and then I could ask you a question about it. Yeah. This is how you see me, the space in which to place me. The space in me you see is this place. To see this space, see how you place me in you. This is how to place you in the space in which to see. My my favorite of those lines is the one that has the the gap in it, the the one that goes this space in me you see is this place. And it feels like it in that one line it sort of enacts um a lot of what the collection is doing in a larger sense, not just pointing to l- the limitations of language, but also to things that exist outside of language. Um, and one of the things it feels like you do with the breaking apart of language, uh, either with these gaps or these crossed out words or 
prematurely interrupted sentences or words that have been split in half or by your questioning of the act of writing itself in the writing is that you're creating a space in language for unlanguageable things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, 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 to go back, (laughs) I apologize for mining your Facebook page, but (laughs) on, on Facebook, you, you shared a night you had with your, your, students in Iowa that made me think about this, this phenomenon in the book. And Mm -hmm. at dinner, you're all discussing your reading habits as, Mm -hmm. as children. And and they're talking about how, how, how they read, what they read and what it was, what the difficulties were like of being literary geeks. Mm -hmm. And and you said you remained largely quiet Mm -hmm. because you didn't grow up reading books, but you grew up reading people. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to hear more about that Mm -hmm. because somehow I feel like there's some it feels to me like there's some secret in that that allows you to take the things outside of language and somehow create room for them in the language. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, maybe I'm stretching there, but tell, tell us about, tell us about reading people growing up and how that has affected your, your writing practice. Mm-hmm. If it has. I think a lot of it is just my own nature um, of course, as an adult, I'm aster. I I have to do a lot of things that require me to get outside of myself, you know. So I, for example, I teach, and so I cannot sit in the classroom in a corner and be an introvert. Mm-hmm. But I really, honestly, feel my natural state is really to be quiet and to be still, and I enjoy, and I always have as a child when I was growing up, uh, enjoyed just, I can sit in a full room and be very happy, be very content to just be completely quiet and listen and to feel, kind of sense people's, um, I want to say energy, but I, I know that sounds so new agey, you know, but I don't know there, to feel to sit in a place and to feel what is, what's happening, you know, um, and and I think just to listen, um, that really was just my natural kind of state, uh, and I still enjoy being that way when I can be, mm. um, and I think that that's that's important to poetics. Too, you know, I mean, it's something I've thought about a lot, like being in Iowa. So I'm going to be very, um, I hope not too revealing here, <laughs> but you know, I'm in these classrooms with these incredible students who have been reading since they could walk, basically, you know, and and they've read it all. And I literally sit there and take notes from them. Mm. I mean, the references and the they'll say, oh, this reminds me of such and such poem by so-and-so. And I'll be quickly, you know, jotting it down and say, oh, I have to go look that up. And I'm learning from them. And I'm honest with them. I say, I feel like we are all here. We are all learning together, right? And then at the same time, I think, okay, what, and I'm still trying to, I feel like it's important to be able to articulate this, and I'm in the process of trying to. So um, 
I'll work it out with you a little bit here. But <laughs> still, somehow, um, my these beautiful students I'm working with now, uh, somehow my path wasn't quite the same as some of them to um, getting to poetry and getting to these poems, you know, and I go home and I say, well, I did write these poems. There's a reason that they ask me to come and visit. So what is, what's the difference here? Like, what is it about my own journey? And I really think it's, it's not just reading people and listening, but it's also a thinking through, uh, a kind of, it can be a singular word, a single word, for example, that would just fascinate me. And um, this leads to a whole line of thinking. Like just last night at um, Lewis and Clark College, uh, I had a reading and I, I read this piece, Opaque. Or it's not titled Opaque, but it's a section from a poem. Yeah, that's actually, Where? it's weird because I that's what I have here to have you read next. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. I mean, you know, I, I was talking to the students last night about the fact that, you know, it's it's really a, a kind of, um, I think my journey has always been a kind, it's, it's like through stumbling and fascination. Um, so I can read opaque maybe, and then I, I can talk a bit about, yeah. That would be that, great. That kind of, uh, all right, here we go. Example. I have always wanted opaque to mean see-through, transparent. I'm disheartened to learn it means the opposite. Why this instinct to assign a definition based on sound? Opaque. I interpret O. Open, P, soft, A, airplane or directional flight, K, cut through, translating to that which is or allows air, airy, penetrating light, transparency, to say you don't fool me for a second, you're opaque. To say I'm partial to opaque objects, I delight in luminosity. To say I'm interested in this painting on glass, brightly opaque. I understand the need to define as a need for stability that I and you can be things standing understood among each other. One word can be a poem, believe it. One word can destroy a poem, dare I. Say, I am writing to penetrate the opaque, but I confuse it too often. I negotiate instinct when a word of lightful meaning flips under, buries me in the work of blankets. 
been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read from Whereas. Did you want to say more about, about? Well, no. Okay, so like this is a great example, and and of course you weren't at at the reading last night, so I'm not wanting to re- repeat myself. But since you weren't there, it's okay. <laughs> Uh, but that is something that we talked about last night uh, was um, this example of opaque and and how I had gone through almost all of my you know most of my life thinking that this word meant um, transparent and and so first of all that's a kind of stumbling for me or a moment of like oh my you know oh my goodness, how could this happen, you know, and uh, laughing at myself, you know, and then also, but it led to an examination of how, how is that? And so in the piece, I'm, you know, I wanted to write about it. And, and I realized it really was the sound that communicated. And so I broke apart the sound, you know, oh, P. A, K, right? What do those sounds communicate? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was fascinating to me, you know? And that's, there's something very, uh, there's something in the, at the very foundation of language, right? And how language is formed to communicate. It's the sound first, right? And so, um, in any case, I think it's that kind of thing I'm always encouraging my students to. It's it's the poetics, it's yes, there are aspects of form and line and um, craft as they say, but also, you know, I'm always encouraging them to um, to to make lots of space for who you are and your way of thinking. It's not just thinking. It's your way of thinking through, right? Uh, let people come with you, you know, on that on that path, right? You, you've often brought up a um, in interviews uh, a line by Charles Olson that you you don't relate to actually. That says form is never more than an extension of content, mm-hmm. and, and you've said that for you sometimes form comes first. Mm-hmm. Um, a shape comes and there's no content later until later that the mm-hmm. content is, is pulled into the form. Mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that for you, maybe an example of a poem or mm-hmm. a process mm-hmm. with regards to that. It sounds a little bit like you're doing that with the word opaque. Cause when you said the word, O, mm-hmm. I saw the letter O mm-hmm. as not a letter, but as an image. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the piece that I just read, the the um, cube, the square on the page, that's a great example, I think, of um, a time when um, form came to me first. So I was working on this piece, Chesapa, and I'd had the first, I knew I wanted it to be a longer piece. And I had the first two sections um, and I had a, a sense, I had a sense of the direction. I knew that 
it was concerning land, this piece, obviously, in origin. Um, the second section um, is about the dragging. Dra uh, a relative of ours, actually, that was found who was dragged to death. And um, this idea that, I mean, yeah, we have this relative who was dragged in our family, and it was so long ago, but it's like, uh, so you would think, okay, everyone moves on. But every few years that I always end up hearing somebody will talk about it, you know, it surfaces again. And, of course, the history that we have, uh, you know, and uh, Pine Ridge specifically, and then, um, you know, just in general, Native people with land and this disposability of our people um, for the sake of land <laughs> is something you just can't get past, right? So that was also something that was important to me in this piece. But anyway, uh, one, um, one day I remember thinking about this poem, um, and I was halfway through it. And for whatever reason, I just knew and felt that there needed to be a square. <laughs> there needed to be a square on a page. And I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell my, I couldn't even explain it to myself, except I felt it. There needs to be, there needs to be a blank page and there needs to be a very simple square in the middle of it. And the words need to be, you know, at each um, side of the square and that's all I could that's that's all I had to go with I didn't know why so I sat I remember sitting at my laptop having this image and just waiting for the words to come and I think it's because shape you know shape Shape also communicates, just like sound, just like opaque, you know. But shape says something. Before the reader, and maybe even before the writer, comes to the page, this, this, a shape is telling you. Hmm. It's, it has, it's saying something. So it's almost like I had to wait for that square to say, to tell me what it wanted to say, you know. Yeah. So I waited, and I tapped out each little word you know patiently waiting word by word I got the first line done and then I realized I said I think each side of this square um, the words need to remain the same I need to use the same language uh, for each side so um, and then that sort of became the structure, the um, constraints that I worked with, and then I finished that section. But um, I don't know if that answers your question. It, it does, and I, I kind of want to ask it again anyways, okay. in, but in, yeah. a different, in a different way, mm -hmm. because you're also a, a visual artist mm -hmm. that uses text, mm -hmm. and you did a project called Buffalo Book with 21 buffalo made out of metal mesh that had text in each of their bodies. Mm -hmm. And more recently, you've done a show called All My Relatives mm -hmm. uh, of a Lakota star quilt where you used 
copper wire as thread and paper as the fabric that mm-hmm. was laser etched with words. Yeah. Um, I was hoping you could both tell us the significance of star quilts, but then also um, your thinking process on how to employ words when you're doing a, a project that begins with form, in this case, the star quilt. Yeah. I'll start with the, the star quilt um, exhibit or the Midakuye um, Oyasun. So I'll start with that just because that takes the longest to explain. <laughs> um, so, but that's actually more recent work. I think Buffalo Book was quite some time ago. I can't remember. But um, I was in an exhibit with two other Lakota artists, um, Mary and Clementine Bordeaux. So the three of us were interested in exploring this uh, phrase in Lakota language uh, that is midakuye oyasin. And it roughly or it translates to uh, we are all related or all my relatives, um, something like that. And um, part of the reason we wanted to um, sort of unfold that phrase or look a little deeper into it is um, it's a phrase that a lot of um, people who are not Lakota um, have adopted. They've adopted, they'll repeat it and say it, um, you know, in public spaces or they'll, um, you know, they say it both in English and Lakota. And it's often used as a way to um, create familiarity with people. In other words, you know, hey, we're relatives, we're all related and so on. But I don't think that people always understand the um, sort of the, the white, the greater context that, the Lakota view, the philosophy behind that. And so, in other words, if we are related, um, what does that mean, right? It's not just familiarity and, hey, all right, you know. Um, there are then, to say you're related, to say you're a brother or sister or cousin or what have you, uh, there are responsibilities then. You're entering into a relationship with someone, and that there's an exchange, right? And there's reciprocity. There's things that you do for each other as relatives. And also this idea that it's, as I mentioned earlier with Ray, Ray when I talked about Ray Youngbear, um, just this idea that uh, relatives being related extends beyond just people, you know, and there's the world, being able to see the world around us, um, you know, uh, and also above us <laughs> as, as something that we are in a relationship with, right? And having that regard, yeah. And is the choice of using star quilts because the tradition is that you make a star quilt for somebody else? Yes. So the star quilt is something that, you know, Lakota people or people in the nor- Northern Plains area um, give to each other for you know, um, special occasions and so on. So, um, yeah, so it's definitely often a gift of expressing that kind of relationship with one another. So when you start with that framework, similar to the way you start with a square, um, 
what were some of the considerations around what words you wanted to to laser etch into the paper fabric? Mm-hmm. That was a really this is this has been a really special um, exhibit and undertaking for me. Um, those star quilts, I made one huge black one, and that t- was the most time consuming because it had the laser cutting and the st- copper wire and so on. And then I had a multi multicolored one, um, which I did not sew together. But all of that took about a year to make. Um, but regarding the text, the language that I chose, um, so this was kind of a collaborative effort in some ways. So um, Mary was working sculpturally, and Clementine uh, is a studied document, documentary films, so she was um, conducting interviews. Uh, so what she, and I think Mary also helped with the interviewing as well, but anyway, they interviewed uh, six other Lakota women who were speakers uh, in the community, and also all of them were educators, which was interesting too. So they went out and interviewed, uh, conducted interviews on this idea of Midakuya Oyasin, to share what they understood from that, um, the great, the greater or deeper meanings of that. And so um, Clementine um, sent me audio clips to listen to. So I sat down and um, I listened to, you know, hours of that. It felt like hours. It was hours. And um, took notes, things that were... Um, I think important points that some of the 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 women were making um, really interesting things. Uh, for example, uh, one of the community members was talking about the making of dictionaries and some of the history of that Lakota dictionaries and a little bit of the politics and the and the involvement of the church in that and all of that. And those are things that I had heard from my own, a few of my own family members. But it was nice to hear that, um, you know, from outside my family as well, that this is this is an awareness that our community has as a whole. I heard a, someone else talk about uh, grief, also anger, the importance of working through anger uh, that we carry. Um, given the history that we've lived through. Also, intuition. Someone was talking this really beautiful thing about um, how it's our responsibility uh, as Lakota people to develop our intuition. I'd never heard someone say it that way, Hmm. that it is our responsibility to develop intuition. Because... This makes you a good relative. Wow. You know? So when someone is suffering, you know it. You can feel it, you know? Uh, And so on. If someone's in need, you can go to them. And, like, you know, so intuitively speaking, I mean, this this intuition is real. It was listening to this interview. It was affirmed as a real, very real thing. And not just that, but that it's our duty our obligation to strengthen it you know Uh, so there were all these beautiful things in these interviews and I took notes Um, I also did 
some research of my own on certain ideas and things in our language. And that was how I developed those poems for mm. the star quilt. Uh, and then the form, um, if you could see it on the page, actually I have some here with me, but um, I made it so that, how do I explain this on the radio? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so the the quilt has diamonds. Okay. And the quilt is actually made out of heavy cotton paper from India. Um, and so I laser cut phrases into each diamond. But the way it works is going from the top diamond, the top point, as you move downward, the reader can go in any direction downward and connect the phrases in any pattern that they would like. And hopefully, as they reach the bottom point, they've created a poem of their own. And hopefully the poem makes sense in some way or a little bit of sense, you know, mm -hmm. following um, based on things from the interviews that um, I had. One of the one of the things that makes me think of in Whereas is is your uh, poem Diction, mm -hmm. which you wrote in response to being a criticism you received in your MFA program. Man, you've really researched. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason why I think of it is because because um, you were you were told that your personal I um, comes from a small world, right? Yeah. And that um, you needed to work on your diction. Mm -hmm. But then your response was the inviting of other people's voices mm -hmm. into the poem in a way. Like, so in a way that, like the star quilt, you, you're sort of inviting um, the voices of others mm -hmm. to create your diction. Mm -hmm. um, could, you, could you speak a little bit about that poem and, and the voices that you invited into it? Oh, sure, yeah. Well, the first voice I guess I invited into that piece was um, Zint Kala Shah, who was a Dakota writer. Uh, and she, I would say, in, the, in a lineage of... Um, she's someone I would consider... Um, I, I feel like, you know, she's a predecessor um, from the Northern Plains, Dakota... Um, heritage. Um, and she was a story writer, right? A yes, novel. she did write some poetry. Um, she's more known for her um, for her fiction. Um, so I invite. I used uh, a paragraph she from one of her stories about beadwork, but then I used you know um, some erasure in that piece to kind of shape it into something that applies to writing, you know, mm. this idea of design and finishing a thing once it's begun and so on. And then uh, the next section, I I um, worked with text from James Welch, who is also um, from up north. And, um, yeah, so... Mm -hmm. What I love about the, ex the experience of, of traveling through Whereas for the first time is that we get all of this experimentation and this interruption and the erasure and the the white space, and then we arrive at the last the last poem in the first half. 
So it's in the yeah. book is in two halves. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden we have diction and syntax and punctuation that conforms to mm-hmm. the norms, to the conventions of English. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We're, we're seeing a poem in complete sentences. Mm-hmm. And this poem is about the death sentence of the Dakota 38. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was hoping maybe you would be willing to read the first page Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we could talk a little bit about the circumstance that the end question uh, uh, raises. Yeah, sure. Okay. 38. Here, the sentence will be respected. I will compose each sentence with care by minding what the rules of writing dictate. For example, all sentences will begin with capital letters. Likewise, the history of the sentence will be honored by ending each one with appropriate punctuation, such as a period or question mark thus bringing the idea to momentary completion. You may like to know, I do not consider this a, quote, creative piece. I do not regard this as a poem of great imagination or a work of fiction. Also, historical events will not be dramatized for a, quote, interesting read. Therefore, I feel most responsible to the orderly sentence, conveyor of thought. That said, I will begin. You may or may not have heard about the Dakota 38. If this is the first time you've heard of it, you might wonder, what is the Dakota 38? The Dakota 38 refers to 38 Dakota men who were executed by hanging under orders from President Abraham Lincoln. To date, this is the largest, quote, legal mass execution in U.S. history. The hanging took place on December 26, 1862, the day after Christmas. This was the same week that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. In the preceding sentence, I italicize same week for emphasis. There was a movie titled Lincoln about the presidency of Abraham Lincoln. The signing of the Emancipation Proclamation was included in the film Lincoln. The hanging of the Dakota 38 was not. 
In any case, you might be asking, why were 38 Dakota men hung? We've been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read an excerpt from her poem 38 in her collection, Whereas, from Grey Wolf Press. So can you talk to us about the circumstance a little bit about the uh, Sioux uprising, which you mentioned is the largest uh, mass execution in U.S. history, but yet remains largely erased from memory from most uh, non-Native Americans? Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's more important to me is um, maybe just what you just said, is why it's erased. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it. <laughs> you know, that's the point. That's the point of this poem. You know, why it's why these stories are not retold. I mean, just the idea that uh, I think I, that's what I was pointing towards even in this very um, recent movie, well, somewhat recent movie, Lincoln, we're not going to tell, we're not going to include that. Right. Right? We're going we're gonna to make a story, make a movie, and tell the story of this wonderful president and the, the struggles he had and, and the good things he did. And we're not going to uh, recount anything that is troubling or... Um, uncomfortable for the viewers, for the listener. We don't want these stories, right? Um, And I think that's also something we've been talking about. We talked a little bit this semester with my students, this idea of discomfort. And um, there's a Canadian poet named Shane Rhodes who wrote a book called X, um, X Poems. Where and he's a non-native. Um, he's not from First Nations. Uh, he's a Canadian. Um, he calls himself settler. And but he's written this whole book, uh, sort of looking at the treaties um, between First Nations and the Canadian government. And clearly, he's positioned himself. Uh, I think on the side of or for the rights of First Nations people, you know, in view of these um, treaties. Um, But in an interview, I thought this was really interesting. He was talking about this, his mistrust of this idea of discomfort. You know, he mistrusts that. And, And we were looking at that and even the language that is applied to these kinds of conversations where we talk, we share these kinds of stories. Um, And this thing of discomfort or shame or guilt and whatever, uh, immediate, of course, then of course we don't want to have these conversations. We don't want to hear these stories. We don't want to remember certain things. You know, we've moved on. Well, no, First Nations people haven't moved on. They remember them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this is part of our our family. It's part of our family history and so on. And so what if we begin changing the way that we understand those conversations? And I've talked about this before. So again, I hate ever repeating myself too much. But I still think it's really brilliant, um, this... Uh, 
little video by um, Faith Spotted Eagle. Uh, and so she's, she is, uh, there's this video, I think it's in, under Lakota Essential Understandings. If you, if you YouTube that, you'll find this. And she talks about this thing of, um, the need for Native people to be able to, um, voice, give these stories a voice to, to share them you know, in a way that's part of our own healing um, and our own, you know, um, I think it's necessary to be completely present, right? But she talks about that and she said, on the other hand, um, for the non-Native listener, um, this is not about shame or guilt, sharing these things. Um, That's not healing, shame and guilt that's not healing to anybody so it's not about that but she said it's instead it's really a freedom from denial and a liberation it's a li- so if we start thinking of that a liberation this becomes a liberation for all of us you know um i think that really turns things on its head right and again i'm sorry i i feel like i've talked several times um, in a few interviews about this idea, but I, I think it's central, especially to this piece, um, 38. That's why I'm bringing it up. Yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I don't think I've heard you say it Oh, before. okay, good. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping maybe you would read the last page as well, mm-hmm. partially because it's another instance of, of this notion of, of poetry um, outside of words or poetry that's composed of something other than words. And, You'd said that part of the reason why you, or maybe the main reason you wanted to write 38 was to find a way to include this anecdote about Andrew Myrick. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you you want to set that up before you read that page, um, what he said? And um, I'm not sure if it says it on that page I think it's actually on the last page. Okay, great. What I think is important maybe um, to know before the last page is... um, that the the land base for the Dakota people was continually uh, shrinking and shrinking, and they uh, it had shrunk down to something like a ten mile tract, and um, so they could not hunt beyond that land. So okay, their their means for uh, survival they couldn't hunt. So then they were uh, you know bait. Their survival was based on money. Okay, the money they were promised never made it to them, and so they couldn't uh, they couldn't buy anything outright. And um, the traders in the area were not um, extending store credit to them, so they they were just literally starving when this Sioux uprising ha- happened. You know, and there's a trader and. I think that's all I need to explain. So th- these were the conditions um, leading up to this particular event um, that was important to me. When the Dakota people were starving, as you may remember, government traders would not extend store credit to, quote, Indians. One trader named Andrew Myrick is famous for his refusal 
to provide credit to Dakota people by saying, if they're hungry, let them eat grass. There are variations of Myrick's words, but they are all something to that effect. When settlers and traders were killed during the Sioux uprising, one of the first to be executed by the Dakota was Andrew Myrick. When Myrick's body was found, his mouth was stuffed with grass. I am inclined to call this act by the Dakota warriors a poem. There is irony in their poem. There was no text. Real poems do not really require words. I have italicized the previous sentence to indicate inner dialogue, a revealing moment. But on second thought, the words, let them eat grass, click the gears of the poem into place. So we could also say language and word choice are crucial to the poem's work. Things are circling back again. Sometimes when in a circle, if I wish to exit, I must leap. And let the body swing from the platform out to the grasses. We've been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read from Whereas. It really um, ignites the opening line of the book with new meanings. Uh, I already had all these meanings for the opening line, which is make room in the mouth for grasses before I knew Andrew Myrick's story, that perhaps poetry is something we might receive in a space and a place rather than something that we speak, like, that our mouths are not just emitting words, but receiving them um, and and receiving something that isn't words. So in this case, grasses. and. Uh, grasses property and grasses theft of land and transforming that into justice and poetry. Uh, but I, I wanted to also hear you talk a little bit about the cover for the book, which is from a movie, Modest Livelihood, mm -hmm. and is a field of grasses with uh, an artist, Wayne Linklater, mm -hmm. kneeling in them. Mm -hmm. uh, because I felt like there was a connection between 38 and this movie, but I was, I wanted to hear why you chose to put this still from this film on the cover of your book. Oh, yeah. Well, gosh, it's so nice of you to mention that. Um, there is a connection, I think, between, well, not just 38 and that the image on the cover, but um, I think the whole book. So um, when I was writing the book, um, I had 
you know, of course, the first draft of my manuscript. Um, but I think that um, as I was sort of orchestrating and ordering the pieces together and looking at the, the book as a whole, um, I felt uh, I, I wanted to have something that was sort of a unifying thread. And so uh, ultimately grass became that thread throughout the book. And so um, when I was looking for an image for the cover, um, grass was something that I really was really important to me. I wanted to have that. Um, and I was searching through all kinds of archives of a uh, few friends, native artists, um, through their work, and emailing people, do you have anything with grass in it, and so on. And I remembered, uh, while I was doing that, I remembered this um, still image from um, from a modest livelihood. And so I emailed Dwayne and asked him if, if I could take a look at that. But the film, A Modest Livelihood, the title comes from um, he's Cree from Canada, and I think it comes from there um, in the territory that he's from, their treaty. And there's, uh, I think, a section in their treaty that has to do with hunting rights. And something about um, they had rights in this particular t territory um, as long as it did not exceed a modest livelihood. Right. It so. said it said you can hunt here. Uh, let's see what it, what do I have? It upheld the hunting and fishing rights, but it clarifies that the right is limited to the earning of a quote unquote modest livelihood, not the accumulation of wealth. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. But I was thinking of it with, with regards to thirty eight, also because it's two n artists, native artists, who are on a hunting trip. Very little is spoken. Mm -hmm. And it's the very act, it's not words, it's the act of hunting on the land that is uh, the the reassertion of their right to hunt, essentially. Right. Yes. Which yeah. felt connected somehow yeah, to Yeah, I the, see that. Yeah. For sure. And then this this repurposing of uh, the, this language, bureaucratic language from the Canadian Supreme Court. That's right. The modest livelihood, it... it um, feels connected in a way to the second half of your book. Yes. The way this the way the whereas half of whereas is uh, an appropriation of bureaucratic language to your own ends mm -hmm. as a poet. Um, so could you talk to us a little bit about um, the various constraints you used in writing this series of poems? using the language of Barack Obama's uh, supposed apology to Native Americans. Um, what were some of the, the constraints um, or the limitations you put mm -hmm. upon yourself in, in, in creating the whereas poems? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, man. Well, I mean, I've often called this a project of constraints <laughs> because... Um, I don't know. I think I was very aware. I felt, even when I first started, I thought, okay, if I carry this through, finish what I started, as Zint Kalash Shah says, <laughs> I knew it was kind of ambitious. 
you know. And I think ambitious also to just address this big, you know, congressional, this governmental document. And also as um, as a writer and a native writer, and I'm, I was very aware of um, what kind of um, position I might be put into if I wasn't careful. Um, so one of those things was I did not want to put myself in the position of being a spokesperson for every Native American (laughs) in this country. Uh, You know, I certainly could never do that. Uh, So so it came down to some very practical decisions. Uh, I actually just talked about that this morning. Yeah. I was there. Yeah, you were there uh, at the panel. Um, And I... One of the decisions I made was uh, to write, for the most part, in first-person I. And I really was not concerned with the personal I in the, the, the Western canon or even Eastern canon um, with how that, that history of it. I, I was most concerned with really being very conscious that I am going to speak uh, from my experience. And I set the whole first half of this book is setting up who I am, which is this is who I am. Uh, So when when you get to the second half, you know who I is, right? (laughs) So I'm a mother, I'm an artist, I'm an educator, and all of these things. I'm a daughter, I'm an auntie, and so on. So, so then by the time you get here, uh, I'm hoping that the reader has a sense for who who the speaker is, right? Um, so they're they're first person. I wrote a lot of prose blocks, uh, a lot in that form because I felt like it allowed for the anecdote, anecdote, or the the short narrative um, story, you know. A little bit of storytelling. Can I ask you about the a little bit more about the first person um, mm-hmm. versus using the avoiding the we? Because mm-hmm. um, when when I had Tommy Pico on the show, mm-hmm. he very overtly within his poems uh, discusses the distrust of the we mm-hmm. and also of abstract language. And and you have a poem called We mm-hmm. in this collection that describes we as both presumptuous. And as a rude inclusion, and I love mm-hmm. that phrase, rude mm-hmm. inclusion. Um, you've also said that to personalize is the only de- way to deal with abstract language. Um, so I was wondering if you could maybe talk more about the strategy of using it specifically as a way to deal with an apology that is is c- probably couldn't be more abstract and couldn't be more nonspecific and couldn't be more impersonal. Mm-hmm. Because you could have, you're being addressed as a we mm-hmm. in, in it. Is that, so I guess is, uh, my question might be, is the personalization part of the rejection of what was offered, essentially, if anything was offered in the bureaucratic language that was written? Mm-hmm. Well, well, yeah, that is part of the considerations. Also, I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, because... Um, 
that was another thing about the apology, and it's online for any listeners. If you want to find it, it's at congress.gov. You can look up um, apology Native American. You'll probably find it. Um, But that was the thing is, you know, in all of the whereas statements in in the prelimin, you know, in the the language leading up to the resolution section, the section of resolutions, you know, they cover everything from boarding schools, you know, um, to broken treaties, to massacres, (laughs) Wounded Knee, Sand Creek, these huge, huge, huge moments like it was like um, taking a huge, and now this is a cliche, but you know, like a big roller, a paint roller, right? And these huge swaths they're covering in history and in our people and our community. And it is too easy to just go down that list and and say, oh, we're sorry for all of it. <laughs> you know, there's no specific, no specific like. Uh, that, and that was part of this project is I wanted to paint in some detail. And so some of that, and the detail I chose to use was my own experience as, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And one line that, that you've mentioned that genocide never is mentioned in the apology. And mm-hmm. there's this one line of the apology from Obama where he, he says, whereas native people and non-native settlers engaged in numerous armed conflicts in which unfortunately both took innocent lives, that seems to negate any sense yes. of a mean, meaningfulness yes. around the apology. Yeah. But to, to return to um, this question that we've talked about from the beginning around uh, words versus actions, mm-hmm. whether actions and words are twinned together or whether one is replacing the other, can, can you sp- speak to the ways in which the Obama apology is, is, is an apology in, in some regard without meaning? Be, what are the things that are lacking other than specificity that, um, that would infuse the apology with some sort of uh, real-world meaning? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll actually answer it, answer this question um, using uh, a response from some young people, actually, on Pine Ridge. I had an installation while I was about a third of the way through this um, this response, my poems. I also had an, a visual. Uh, I had an installation on Pine Ridge at the Heritage Center. Um, it was three months long. And what we did was we took three sections of that apology because I, I, we held it. I, I wanted to hold this installation because I actually wanted to hear from our own people, our community, some of their response to the apology. And uh, so... And and it was really it was it was good it was a good experience for me like it was very affirming that okay I wasn't crazy I wasn't being overly sensitive a lot of the things I was picking up on 
the young people or even the older people there caught on to the as well. So this installation was up for three months. And in any case, it's uh, also on the grounds of Red Cloud Indian School, the Heritage Center. So a lot of young people came in and participated as well. And um, I watched this young group of girls come in and I saw them over in the corner like talking talking and they had a copy of the apology and they were reading it and thinking about it and then finally I saw them get to work and give start working on their um they were painting on the walls I didn't mention that to the listeners sorry so we projected three sections of this apology and invited the community to come in and interact with that text and paint on the wall or use marker or whatever. So that's what, what that was about. So the girls were sitting there. And anyway, I guess I had looked away for a while, and I looked back, and they had written in big, huge yellow letters, uh, if you're so sorry, give us back the Black Hills, mm-hmm. which was like, oh, my it was the funniest and the smartest. That was it. Yeah. Right? If you're so sorry, give us back the Black Hills. Honor that contract. Like, and, and it's, yeah. uh, am I correct that every time the word whereas appears in the government apology, which is frequently that whatever words follow the words whereas are uh, not actionable grievances. In other words, they can't that doesn't make the government liable. So they can say, whereas we did such and such, the whereas is sort of a a way to undercut any actual responsibility for the thing being spoken. Is that right? Yes, um, that is right. But I should be clear that that is also my kind of poetic, um, very detailed way, extraction um of the court ruling. So I have, um, okay, let me just give some background. That'll explain. Okay. So when I was uh, working on this um, response, I also began uh, researching other apologies around the world and here in the U.S. This certainly isn't the first uh, apology. Uh, So one of the apologies I read about was um, to the native Hawaiian people um, during Clinton's era. And that's an incredible (laughs) document to read if you have time. Um, It details exactly how that land was taken from their queen. And it's like heartbreaking. It's shocking. So it's all there in black and white. It is, you know, it's it's reprehensible, really. And then in the end, they say, we're sorry. <laughs> you know, we're sorry. <laughs> I don't know. So uh, now, um, after this apology was, you know, issued to the Native Hawaiian people, uh, I think it was not that not much time had passed, and some and uh, something happened over land, a question of land rights, or something came in into the courts um, that had to do with land there. And this apology was used uh, as part of um, 
um, I think some of the community members, the the people there as leverage, right, in their court case. And the ruling came back. Of course, the U.S. government is going to rule in their favor, in their own favor, that whatever is in that apology, and it, they were using the, the whereas statements, you know, as mm-hmm. evidence, like, um, and the the ruling came back that whereas statements, these kinds of um, that that language, those documents cannot be used. Uh, it, it, they they are not liable. Yeah. For what's in in that, so I I as a poet, I mean that's basically the ruling. You can read about it online. Um, so I as a poet then kind of took that down to detail to say whatever follows the whereas uh, and comes before the semicolon, then they are not liable for them. But okay. essentially, that's what it is. Yeah, you know? it's actually you, true. Yeah, right. So even if we put aside the fact that Obama's apology was buried in a defense appropriation bill, that it was delivered on a weekend, that no Native Americans were present, and originally it wasn't spoken out loud from an actual person's mouth to some people hearing it. Um, the We know that the words themselves don't lead to anything other than words. And you've, you've mentioned that there's an absence of the word for apology or I'm sorry in the Lakota language. Well, there's a number of um, native languages. I mean, that's kind of a discussion that... Um, I've had with other um, other people from other um, cultures, yeah. tribal cultures. Um, so, but yeah. No, I was just curious yeah. about the absence of the word certainly isn't the absence of a process of resolution of grievances. So I'm assuming that um, remediation and resolution of remediation of harm and revolution, res, resolution of grievances is happening outside of language. In, a, in in the Lakota culture or outside like that perhaps the the way that happens is through actions is what I'm guessing well yeah right yeah <laughs> I mean actually this is a conversation that um, uh, we I've been having with a few other uh, poets native writers and also um, speakers activists, language activists, just this idea of, I mean, man, I could really take this to other places. Um, But there's even just this idea that, for example, Lakota language is verb-based language. And so uh, this, in order to have even a complete thought, a sentence, you must have an active verb in there. The subject must be doing something uh, in order for it to even be able to be expressed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So in other words, like we've joked around and said, I, I mean, the, the verb to be, the um, tenses is and are, are not uh, complete um, you cannot say um, she is um, or like the ball is on the chair 
or she is inside. They have to be doing something. She is talking um, inside or she is sleeping, whatever. But it's, 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 you can't just be. And so your language cannot just be. I mean, or, or this document cannot just be. There, there has to be some kind of doing. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you were to carry it to right. that, that, um, yeah, Could, Ex- extend the idea. Yeah. And, and to further extend it, I was hoping you would read uh, page eighty-four, uh, which is in the whereas section. Yeah. About the root of reparation. Oh yeah. <laughs> whereas. I read an article in the New York Times about the federal sequestration of funds from reservation programs, the cuts, in federal promises and treaties. The article details living conditions on reservations, a suicide rate ten times higher than the rest of the country. Therein the story of a 12-year-old girl whose mother died. She doesn't know her father. She bounces home to home to foster home, weary. I regard how plainly the writer imparts her repeated sexual abuse for mental care, unavailable services. There's a clinic that doesn't have money after May. Don't get sick after May is the important message. As I read, I cry. I always cry. And here I must be clear. My crying doesn't indicate sadness. Then I read a comment posted below the online article. I am a 14-year-old girl, this is the comment, I am a 14-year-old girl who recently visited the reservation in South Dakota with my youth group. The conditions the Native American people were living in were shocking. When I arrived home, I wrote a petition on whitehouse.gov for the U.S. to formally apologize and pay reparations to the Native American people. The petition uh, only stays up until July 23rd, so please sign and share. Your signing it would really mean a lot to a lot of people. Thank you. Dear 14-year-old girl, I want to write. The government has already formally apologized to Native American people on behalf of the plural you, your youth group, your mother and father, your best friends and their families, you as in all American citizens. You didn't know that, I know, yet Indeed, dear girl, 
the conditions on reservations have changed since the apology, meaning the apology has been followed by budget sequestration. In common terms, sequestration is removal, banishment, or exile. In law speak, it means seizure, uh, seizure for safekeeping, but changed in federal budgeting to mean subject to cuts, best as I can understand it. Dear girl, I went to the Indian Health Services to fix a tooth, a complicated pain. Indian health care is guaranteed by treaty, but at the clinic, limited funds don't allow treatment beyond a filling. The solution offered, pull it. Under pliers, masks, and clinical lights, a tooth that could have been saved was placed in my palm to hold after sequestration. Dear girl, I honor your response and action. I do. Yet the root of reparation is repair. My tooth will not grow back. The root gone. We've been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read from Whereas. I feel like that gets to the heart of, of the book and this question. The phrase, apology does not equal reparations. The root of reparations is repair. feels like it echoes back against everything that comes before around actions beyond words, but it also returns us to the mouth. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have Myrick's mouth mm. stuffed with grass um, becoming a poem and maybe a form of restorative justice, essentially, that any apology maybe would have to come from a body, from a mouth, and be received by another body. Like the mm-hmm. the mouth receiving the apology would have something restored in it, perhaps. Or maybe the climate or the place of that would change. Um, I don't know if I'm making sense, but... No, you know what? You are. Because... Um... This is another idea, I think, in language that I've talked about uh, with students before. Just the idea that, you know, poetics is an art, right? It's an art form. And our primary material is language, right? Okay, so we know that. And I think that we, t- we, we all say that and we, yeah, we nod our heads. Okay, yes, language is our material. But I think sometimes we don't take it for, we don't take it uh, seriously, the materiality of language, okay? So that it is actually something physical that um, leaves the body. Um, We receive language. Language enters the body physically, okay? We either see it, we... uh, we hear it comes. It enters the body through the ear. Um, we also see the person as they are speaking. We read. We read. <laughs> we read, read the them. Yeah, absolutely. You read a person, and you can feel the sincerity. You can or not. 
right? Well, that's, that's where you, we get the juxtaposition of Obama's failed apology and your, your father's apology to you for not being there as much yes. as he would have liked yes. at, uh, when you were growing up. Yeah. But part of that, it seems like part of the apology working was you witnessing the way the words he said affected his body. So the way he, he, he held himself or his body moved Mm -hmm. when he was apologizing was, I don't know if that was the apology, but it was essential. Somehow it seemed like it was essential to the apology. Well, as I remember it and I tried to write it in this way, I mean, it was just very sudden when he offered his, I wasn't expecting him to apologize (laughs) So it was a very sudden thing, um, and we were eating breakfast together, I, and I was uh, in a vegetarian stage at that time. I made him a vegetarian sausage, and, <laughs> and I was sitting there wondering what he thought about it, you know, because he definitely wasn't vegetarian. And so uh, that's what I was thinking about, you know. And maybe thinking about us a little bit and my relationship to him. But in any case, uh, I came, it was not, and he, as I say in the poem, I thought he sneezed. I thought it was a sneeze. And then I looked up to see, no, he, it wasn't a sneeze. He was actually crying, you know. Mm. And, um, yeah, and he just offered this thing and said, you know, I'm really sorry I'm really sorry I wasn't there, you know. Um, And man, like just that that physicality, that presence is very important. You know, seeing that. I knew he meant it. I knew he really meant it. And that was all it took. You know, all those years of hurt were gone. So um, just like that. And I honestly have not re- gone back to those years. I mean, I suppose maybe sometimes I remember them or I'll talk about them, but not in the way I did before. You know, I don't hold this big uh, hammer of of blame or guilt over him. Mm-hmm. Like, that's done. Yeah. You know, we've talked about it. We, we care for each other. So... Um, Hey, I got off on a tangent. Where did we start? No, that's that's <laughs> exactly where we were going. Yeah, yeah. Just that uh, that physical, mm-hmm. the physicality of a thing is important. Could you read one more short little section for us mm-hmm. on uh, page sixty-one? Whereas, when offered an apology, I watch each movement the shoulders, high or folding, tilt of the head, both eyes down or straight through me. I listen for cracks in knuckles or in the word choice. What is it that I want? To feel, and mind you, I feel from the senses. I read each muscle. I ask the strength of the gesture to move like a poem. Expectations, a terse armfold. 
a failing noun thing I scold myself in the mirror for holding. Because I learn from young poets, as I mentioned before, <laughs> I learn. One sends me new work spotted with salt crystals. She metaphors as her tears. I feel her phrases, quote, I say, and understand me, and I wonder. Pages are cavernous places, white at entrance, black in absorption, echo. If I'm transformed by language, I am often crouched in footnote or blazing in title. Where in the body do I begin? been listening to Laylee Long Soldier read from Whereas. I wanted to pivot to a, a series of found poems that you created uh, using uh, Zidkala Shah's uh, story, Blue Star Woman. Mm-hmm. And, and you've said that when you separated out the parts of speech, the nouns, the verbs, the adjectives, and the dialogue, that when you stripped away the details and particulars of the story, mm-hmm. it became obvious that we are still dealing with the same nouns and the same verbs and the same dialogue that mm-hmm. she was in the 19th century around identity and land mm-hmm. and rights yeah. and resistance. And I, w- I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that, first of all. And then I had a question I wanted to ask you about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, so I'm re- uh, I'm still working on th- those that series of poems. There's eight of them, and those those are um, the actual actually that's what I used for the multicolored star quilt mm. um, that installation. So that um, that's a first iteration of it, and in in the star quilt, I had just taken each each uh, section. And um, like one section had all verbs, then another section had um, nouns and then adverbs and then dialogue and so on. So and they were all grouped together. And now I'm kind of reworking that so that I'm taking those parts of speech and um, working them into pieces that are more like the black star quilt where people can make poems from the top point to the bottom Um, and so I'm mixing up the parts of speech together Um, but yeah I think you pretty much summarized what I have to say on that well the reason why I thought about it was this through line of language staying the same around these these vital questions that are mainly erased by the general population or not even asked I feel like the the juxtaposition you do between ending part one with Abraham Lincoln and beginning part two with Barack Obama is a really important one for, I think, particularly for white readers. Mm -hmm. Um, Both of these presidents, many progressives would hold up as good or noble or maybe even Mm -hmm. the best of our presidents. And 
by juxtaposing Obama's apology with Lincoln's mass execution, it, it feels like it highlights the ways in which the American project of native erasure continues, mm -hmm. even when um, the rhetoric is more aspirational mm -hmm. or more progressive. Mm -hmm. That maybe that if we stripped, like as you say, if we stripped away the details, mm -hmm. we would have the same sentence yeah. structure. Mm -hmm. Am I am I making sense? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you said it best, I think. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to, I wanted you mentioned something about on Facebook again about Nick uh, something Nick Estes said about the fear of fascism and how um, many Americans are now fearing, rightfully so, fearing fascism yeah, in the absolutely. United States. Mm -hmm. um, but it's a fear that Native people have always had. So, in a sense, it's that, not a fear. It's real. Right. That they've lived those under. Those are those conditions we have lived under for generations now mm. to lose all of our rights. Um, you know, it, thank goodness. I mean, in, in my generation, okay, we've had the blessing of having our uh, right to, um, you know, religious freedom has been restored in the late 70s. <laughs> you know, but my father... My grandparents and before them, I mean, we had no rights to religious freedom, not even to speak our languages. Children were removed, you know, uh, and even at present uh, in our communities, I mean, I think Pine Ridge, and forgive me, my Pine Ridge friends, if I get this wrong, I mean, I think the unemployment is up in the 80-something percent uh, range. I mean, if if mainstream Americans lived under those conditions, there would be beyond riots mm. <laughs> in the streets. And that's not even mentioning the the disappearance and murder of Native and women. And the missing and and which is directly, in my opinion, connected to land, the treatment of land. You see that. I mean, the exploitation of the land and the pipelines and what is done, I mean, it's directly connected to the women and the treatment of, you know, the views towards women. Um, but, yeah, so fascism is not a fear that uh, Native people lived under. That was, that's very real. Those are the conditions that we have known and, um, and we are working to come out of, right? Um, but... Yes, even under the very best conditions, these um, presidents and government, you know, certain eras that Americans like to to hold as, you know, the glory days or this was the best president of our generation and so on. Well, yeah, again, like you said, if you strip away the, particular, the particulars uh, or the, you know, all the glitter and the shimmer, um, it's not always... Um, all that different. I mean, uh, it's, well, I'm losing my words at the moment, but um, yeah, even under uh, presidents such as Lincoln and Obama, you know, these things have happened. And, but on that note, I do want to say, um, with regard to Obama, you know, he was a president that I did support in some ways. This response was not aimed at him. This was a congressional apology, 
you know. And this response was really aimed not so much as towards him, but towards in a kind of Americanness, of something much bigger yeah. than Obama, and a, a history that's much longer, predating his presidency, of course. So, yeah. So, so you've been you've done a lot since Whereas, both with visual art and mm-hmm. new poems. Mm-hmm. Do you have a book project that you're working on now, or mm-hmm. is it you do? Mm-hmm. Can, are you uh, willing to speak a little bit about it? Well, ironically, the the working title should I be even giving away the title? But I'm going to. <laughs> the working title right now is "We." We just talked about that. Oh no that. way! Yeah. Uh, but it's a book uh, that is mostly a, a lot of collaborations. Uh, so it is in that spirit of collaboration with others. Um, and a lot of my visual work is collaborative as mm-hmm. well in some ways. You know, it's not a direct like you and I are going to write a poem together. But there are different ways of working with people and working with community. Uh, and by co- by coincidence, uh uh, so in English, we is W-E. In Lakota language, um, W-E with the accent over it is we, and that means blood. So there's that mm. um, kind of um, correlation. Will you have yeah. the Lakota word on the title? Yeah, I'm figuring out how I would uh, work that out with the accent more um, just as far as design, but I'll have to figure that out. Yeah, yeah. I love I love having that instability of the word and yeah. the pitch. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's what I'm working on, and it'll. I'm thinking it it will have some visual. It'll have some image images in there, photographs of some of my visual work, and also it's um, a lot about love. Oh. Yeah. Great. So, but. Um, different angles of love. So, for example, I'm working on this very long, it's almost an epic kind of piece, which will take up quite a bit of the book. I'm picturing maybe 30 to 40 pages on grief, So, which I consider an essential part of love. Mm. You know, it's something that we go through at some point with any kind of loss of someone we've loved. So, um, um, and that's that's a collaborative piece based on an installation I had in Canada. Wow. Um, so, yeah. I can't wait for this book. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's, defini- it's definitely a departure from whereas. Yeah, but. I hope you come back. It was a great pleasure having you on Between the Covers today. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a great conversation. We're talking today to Laylee Longsoldier, poet and visual artist, about her book, Whereas, from Grey Wolf Press. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. I've uploaded a newer poem of Laylee Long Soldiers, entitled King, to the Bonus Archive. 
This joins bonus material by Carmen Maria Machado, Therese Marie Myatt, Sheila Hetty, Forrest Gander, John Keane, Jen Bervin, and others. Because we reference a lot of other artists and thinkers in this conversation, I've also put some of these up on the Patreon page for easy access, including the poem from Joy Harjo and the video of Faith Spotted Eagle talking about shame and denial. All of this can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes, and Barbara Browning's Trove of Ukulele Covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.